Good afternoon. Uh, if you would turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22. Well, last week we looked at the first 10 verses of Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 through 10. And we saw that God gave Abraham a test. And the test was to sacrifice his son of promise, Isaac, as a complete burnt offering, total dedication to God. And we saw how God's testing of Abraham was not immoral. It was not wrong on God's part to do this. We saw that divine tests are really opportunities for God's people to show their loyalty and their love and their obedience to God. And what was Abraham's response? We saw that Abraham responded in faith. He did offer up his son. And we learned several things about faith from Abraham's example. We learned that faith is not a blind leap in the dark. We learned that faith, Abraham's faith, was grounded in the promises of God and what God had already done for him in his life. You see, God not only had promised to Abraham that these things would come true, that all the blessings that he had promised Abraham would come through his son Isaac, but he promised them by way of covenant. And remember last week, we saw that God even took a sanction upon himself. If these things don't come true, then let this be done to me. And so we see that this gave Abraham resolve and confidence to do this terrible deed. And we finally saw how the the picture of Abraham offering up his only son was a picture or a prefiguring of how God the Father has sent his only son, given up his only beloved son to die for the sin of his people. And so we pick up, and we're going to study verses 11 through 24. It's the rest of the passage. But let's pick up at verse 9. So Genesis 22, verse 9. When they, that's Abraham and Isaac, when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram, caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of the place, The Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his, young, to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. 
Now after these things, it was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah has also borne children to your brother Nahor, Uz his firstborn, Booz his brother, Kemuel the father of Aram, Kesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jidlap, and Bethuel. Bethuel fathered Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Rumah, bore Teba, Gaham, Tahash, and Maaka. Let's read God's word. Well, what's our signpost for today? Where, where are we going for this sermon? This is the signpost. God has provided a lamb for his chosen people. God has provided a lamb for his chosen people. And I have three points today that will cover this text. So let's look at the first point, and it's number one, the surprising substitute. The surprising substitute. And this is found in verses 11 to 13. I won't reread them because we just read these verses. But let's look at these verses um, in your Bibles and let's note a few things. In verse 11, it says, But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven. Now, there's many opinions about who the angel of the Lord is. But for now, for our, our, our sermon today, it will suffice to say that God speaks his very words to Abraham. God speaks from heaven to Abraham, perhaps through a messenger. And the point is, though, that these are the very words of God. And in in verse 11, notice how God repeats Abraham's name. Abraham, Abraham. Earlier in the passage, God had called to Abraham, and notice how God just said his name once, Abraham. And now when Abraham raises the knife to slaughter his son, God says, Abraham, Abraham. Can you think of other places in the scriptures where God says a person's name twice? It's where he's getting their attention. For example, when Moses saw a bush that was burning but not consumed in the wilderness, a voice came from the bush and it said, Moses, Moses. Or when Mary of Bethany was uh, sitting at the feet of Jesus and her sister Martha was upset that she's not helping her, Jesus said, Martha, Martha. Or as Saul was on the road to Damascus and a blinding light from heaven came to the Lord Jesus, and what did he say? Saul, Saul. And so we see that the Lord is getting Abraham's attention. Look at verse 12. We see a very interesting phrase. The Lord says, For now I know that you fear God. Now I want to be clear. God did not learn something new that he didn't know before. We confess, we believe that God is omniscient. That means he knows all things. His knowledge is eternal. And some have tried to say that Well, God knew that Abraham would obey, but he didn't experience it in time. And I think think we should avoid such things. I think it's better to, to read this as that Abraham's obedience confirmed what God already knew about Abraham. And then in verse 12, remember at the very beginning how it said that God tested Abraham. And remember how I said that that takes the focus off of Isaac. We know Isaac is going to be okay because this is a test. And now we read in verse 12, God says, do not lay your hand on the boy. God does not want Isaac to be killed or hurt. And Abraham passed this test. Now look in verse 13. Uh, We have the ram caught in the thicket, which means there was probably trees here. um, And the ram is caught by its horns. Now, I felt a little foolish, but I had to look up what a ram was. I am not a a sheep herder um, or a shepherd. And some people try to make a big deal about how Abraham says God will provide a lamb, and then it's a ram that appears. 
But apparently a ram is just a sheep. It's an older male sheep with horns, and a lamb is a little, a little baby sheep. So they're both sheep. I might be using them somewhat interchangeably, but I don't think we should make a big deal about this. And finally, look at verse 14. Abraham calls the place, the Lord will provide. See how the, the word Lord is in all caps? So that's Yahweh will provide, or um, Jehovah Jireh, it's been called. But literally, the Hebrew says, Yahweh will see to it. Yahweh will see to it. The translation is God will provide. I think that is a good translation. All right, so let's look at the surprising substitute. So we saw that Isaac was not sacrificed, nor was he ever meant to be sacrificed. In verse 13, something very key happens. Abraham went and took the ram that had been provided for him, and he offered the ram up as a burnt offering instead of his son. If you can, put yourself in Abraham's shoes. Abraham had been going through an emotional roller coaster of three days, had he not. He had been given a difficult command by God to offer up his son, and he responded in faith. He did this terrible thing, obeying God. And he goes to the point of raising the knife. Think of the resolve that would take to go to that point of obedience. But then he stopped, and God tells him, do not harm the boy. Imagine the relief and the emotion that is going through Abraham's mind here. But then he turns, and what does he see? He sees a ram in the thicket, and the pieces start to come together. You see, this is a fulfillment of his own words earlier in verse 8, when he had said, God will provide a lamb for the burnt offering, my son. But this was in a way that Abraham did not expect nor foresee. You see, God provides, but not always according to human expectations. And so... This substitution, the ram being offered in the place of Isaac, sets in motion an entire theology of substitutionary atonement in the Bible. Now, have there already been sacrifices in the Bible before Genesis 22? Yes, there have. For example, Abel offers up the firstborn lamb of his flock, and the sacrifice is accepted before God. Or after the flood subsides, Noah offers up one of every clean animal as a burnt offering. And it says that the the smell of of the smoke was a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But here in Genesis 22, we see very clearly an animal sacrificed in the place of a human being. We see a substitutionary atonement of a kind happening. And after the ram was was offered up, um, Abraham calls the place... The Lord will provide. Now look at that second part of verse 14. It says, as it is said to this day. Now what does that mean? Well, I think this is the narrator. Probably, I think Moses wrote the book of Genesis. And he's saying, as it is said to this day, when Moses wrote the the first, first five books of the Bible, he's saying, even to this day, the people of Israel look to that mountain and say, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And that almost has a future expectation to it. On the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. How do we make sense of this? Well, I want to, uh, there's two subpoints here that will help us. The first subpoint is Mount Moriah is Mount Jerusalem. Mount Moriah is Mount Jerusalem. You see, the mountain where Abraham offered up his son happens to be the same place where in Jerusalem the temple would be built one day. So follow me. I'm going to go through some passages to show this. In 2 Samuel 24, David, the king, 
decides to make a census of his whole army. He's counting how many soldiers he has just to see how it was a prideful act. And this was wrong. God told him not to do this, but he disobeyed God and he does it anyways. And so what happens is God gives him three punishments. You get to choose, David. What are the three punishments you will have? And, and David chooses a pestilence that will come on the land. And it says that the angel of the Lord killed 70,000 men. And David, watching his people die, he says, Lord, punish me and not my people. And so what does God tell him to do? He tells him, by way of one of David's prophets, to go buy a certain threshing floor up in Jerusalem and to build an altar there and to offer burnt offerings on this altar in Jerusalem. And David does. He goes and offers up burnt offerings to God, and it says that the angel of the Lord stopped slaying his people. God listened to him. And then David says, right in that place in Jerusalem, he says, here shall be the house of the Lord and the altar of the burnt offering for Israel. And now, if you would turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 3, I'm going to read one verse from 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1. In 2 Chronicles 3, 1, it says this, Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where Yahweh had appeared to David his father at the place that David had appointed on the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. You see, the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem was built on the same Mount Moriah where Abraham had offered up his son. This is a reasonable conclusion from Scripture. And this really strengthens the connection between what happened on Mount Moriah and substitutionary atonement throughout the entire scriptures. You know, in the book of Leviticus, we're reading it right now, God gives many instructions about how the priests were to atone for the sins of the people. You see, when they sinned, even daily, they were supposed to bring an animal sacrifice to the priest, and the priest would kill the, the animal, and the, the blood, the lifeblood of that animal, would atone for the sin of the, the, the sinner. And we saw that Israel was spared the knife. Israel was spared the knife. Instead of them being uh, punished by God, the animal was punished. And so we see that Isaac was spared the knife as well, just as Israel would be spared the knife. And in this way, I talked last week about how Isaac was a type of Christ, how the father gave up his only son. But also in a certain way, Isaac represents Israel and all those who need a sacrifice to be killed on, in their stead. The second thing, the second subpoint is Abraham's Passover deliverance. Abraham's Passover deliverance. This, is, this connection is further strengthened by what happens at Passover. In Passover, remember there were ten plagues or calamities on Egypt. And the last of those ten plagues is, was that every firstborn son would be killed. And it was not just the Egyptians, was it? It was also Israel. All the firstborn sons were to be killed. They were sentenced to death. But God provided a way for the firstborn sons of Israel to escape from the sure fate. And what were they supposed to do? They were supposed to take a lamb without blemish, to kill them at twilight, and to take the blood. They were supposed to put it on the doorposts and the lintel of their house. And after doing that, they were supposed to cook the lamb and eat all of the lamb. And it says that if there was anything left, they were supposed to burn it so that nothing remained until the morning. 
And we all know what happened when, the, day, when the, the time of judgment came. The Lord saw the blood of the lamb and passed over the house of the firstborn sons. So what does this have to do with Abraham and Isaac? Well, this is kind of a prefiguring of Passover. We see a Passover happening on Mount Moriah. For the firstborn son of Abraham and Sarah, Isaac, was saved through the sacrifice of a lamb. The ram was sacrificed in his stead. And it was only through the blood of a substitute that the firstborn son was saved. And later, when the people of Israel got to Canaan, where did they celebrate Passover? They celebrated it in Jerusalem. Our Lord Jesus Christ went to Jerusalem three times to celebrate the Passover. And there was one Passover where in Jerusalem, another firstborn son, instead of having a, a lamb sacrificed for him, he was himself the Passover lamb. For the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, what does the scripture say? He ate Passover with his disciples, and he took the bread and broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. And he took the cup and he said, this is cup is the new covenant in my blood. And the next day, Jesus was crucified as the sacrificial lamb on a hill not far from where Abraham had offered up his only son, but killed an animal in his stead. But this time for the Lord Jesus, there was no ram in the thicket. The Lord did not pass him by, but instead the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Because Jesus was a sacrificial lamb who took away the sins of all his people, and he bore the curse for all for those who believe in him. And my friends, if you are here today, and you have not placed your life and your trust in the hands of the Lord Jesus, there is no ram in the thicket for you either. You see, you are like Isaac. You are bound upon the altar of God's justice. The knife is raised. There is no escape. You cannot escape. But the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus Christ takes your place. He takes your place. He laid down his life as a substitution for all who trust in his sacrifice. For, for, as the scriptures say, our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And if you have placed your life and your trust in the hands of the Lord Jesus, you plead his, his blood, what does this passage have for you? Well, if you're a believer, look at verse 14. You can read that with great faith, for you can say, on the mount of the Lord, it has been provided. It has been provided for you. Jesus laid down his life for you if you are a true Christian. But even as Christians, we need to continually return to the death of Christ and what it means for us. This isn't just a one-time consideration. As the hymn goes, we are prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave a God I love. If we're truthful, those lyrics, they are true for all of us, aren't they not? And the substitutionary death of Christ, when we consider in all its terrible beauty, causes us to see the sinfulness of our own sin. Even as Christians, we are not good enough to pay for our own sin. We need a Savior. But in this, when looking at the death of Christ and seeing the sinfulness of our own sin, we need to be careful. Because if we have such a low view of ourselves, sometimes we can then try to fix ourselves and not return to the Christ of Calvary. Repentance that does not flow from the atoning work of Christ will do nothing for you. Again, as verse 14 says again, we need to read this over and over again, as stubborn as we are. On the mount of the Lord, it has been provided. 
And so, back to our signpost. God has provided a lamb for his chosen people. Let's move on to the second main point. This is found in verses 15 to 18. Number two, the covenant confirmed. The covenant confirmed. I'll reread this. And I want to give credit to where credit is due. This was a a difficult few verses. And I was greatly helped by two books. One by our pastor, um, Sam, The Mystery of Christ. And also another one called Kingdom Through Covenant by Peter Gentry and Stephen Wellen. So I'm giving credit to where credit is due. They greatly helped me in understanding these verses. But let's read read verses uh, 15 to 18. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. There's a lot here, and so I've organized it into five brief subpoints. So here we go. Here's the first subpoint God's covenant with Abraham. God's covenant with Abraham. I mentioned this last week. This is what gave this is this is what uh, um, gave Abraham such a confidence and a resolve to do what he did. But let's review the covenant that God made with Abraham. So I have the what, who, when, and why. I'll go very quickly. Here's the what. What is a covenant? Well, a covenant is there's a there's two words that help us understand it. It's a guaranteed commitment. It's a guaranteed commitment. Or you could call it an oath-bound commitment. It's an agreement, but it's much stronger than just a, I will do this and you will do this. There are sanctions involved. If I don't do this, then this thing will happen to me if I don't do it. It's a guaranteed commitment. All right, that's the what. What about the who? Who is in the covenant? Well, the covenant is between Abraham and God. You see, Abraham is what we call the federal head of this covenant. God made the covenant with him. He represents all those who descend from him. That's why it's named after him, the Abrahamic covenant. He's the federal head. As it goes with Abraham, so it will go with his descendants. And then what about the when? When did this covenant take place in scripture? If you could remember three numbers, this will help you. 12, 15, 17. 12, 15, 17. Those are chapters in Genesis where this covenant um, takes place. In Genesis 12, it's where the covenant begins. God says, come out of Ur and go to the promised land, and Abraham obeys. And then in Genesis 15, we have that covenant-making ceremony. I talked about this last week, where, remember, the animals were, were cut in two and laid in two piles, and God passes through those, saying, if, if, this, if, I don't hold, um, if I'm not good to my word, then these, this, what happens to these animals will happen to me. And then in Genesis 17, God expands the covenant to include circumcision. You need to be circumcised to be part of this covenant. It, it marks the boundaries of the Abrahamic covenant. So when you, when you think of the Abrahamic covenant, remember those three numbers, 12, 15, and 17. All right, and then the why. Why was this covenant put in place? Well, obviously, we don't know all the reasons, but we know some that were given in Scripture This covenant with Abraham creates Israel. It creates the the, the kingdom of Israel. It shows who the kingdom people are. They're the children of Abraham. 
And Pastor Sam writes in his book, I can quote him because he's not here, it is first and foremost an earthly covenant of national earthly promises. And so this covenant was made to Abraham, and it's an earthly covenant first and foremost. But we also see this covenant with Abraham. It looks and anticipates to the new covenant, does it not? It promises the new covenant because Jesus, as Matthew 1.1 says, was a son of Abraham. And so through the Abrahamic covenant, the Christ will come, and he will not just bless the Jews, but all peoples. Okay, so that's the review of the God's covenant with Abraham. Let's look at our text now and try to understand uh, these, these different phrases. Here's our second sub-point. God swears by himself. God swears by himself. That's in verse 16. Now, this has not happened yet. In all of Abraham's dealings with God, God has not done this. This is new. It's a further step of certainty from God that he will be true to his promises. Think of all of the ways that God reiterated and confirmed the covenant to Abraham. It seems like there, it was a lot. And every time it seems like it's more sure, God gives a further assurance that he will be true to his word and to his promise. This is the strongest possible assurance from God. God swears by himself. God is truth itself. God cannot lie. Uh, this is a wonderful uh, a truth. And if you would turn to Hebrews chapter 6, this will help us understand what's going on in this passage. Turn to Hebrews chapter 6, where you can just listen, and I'll read verses 13 to 18. The author of the Hebrews is actually commentating on Genesis 22. So we'll start in verse 13. Hebrews 6, verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham... Since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. Isn't it wonderful when you're reading the Old Testament and you realize that you have a commentary by God on what you're reading? And this is what happens here. Hebrews tells us that God had no one greater uh, to swear. He is the greatest being that is in the universe. He is greater than the universe itself. And he swears by himself. I love verse 17 in Hebrews. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. You see God in his covenants with man and with Abraham here, we see divine condescension and love. You see God's purpose is unchangeable. But don't we as human beings, don't we doubt God's purposes and we doubt God's ways and we're not sure and we are weak and fragile in our faith and God stoops to our weaknesses. He gives us covenant oaths to convince us that his word will come true. And God is eternal, he's unchangeable, he's perfect. And we, if we know that and that we know that he swears by himself, that's greatly encouraging to me. And let's look at our third point, our third subpoint. Abraham's obedience was vital to God's plan. Abraham's obedience was vital to God's plan. 
You see, the blessings that God gave to Abraham in this passage were contingent on his obedience. Look, it says this twice in our passage. Look at verse 16. He says, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. And then in verse 18, it says, because you have obeyed my voice. Now, I want to be clear. It's not as if Abraham, um, I'm sorry, it's not as if God was helpless without Abraham. And that unless Abraham chose, then God's purposes would be over. But instead, God chose for Abraham and his obedience here to play a vital role in the unfolding of redemption. And if you study covenant theology, this shows how God's covenant with Abraham is one based on obedience. It's based on Abraham's obedience or works. But I want to be very clear here. Abraham was not saved because of his good works. It was because he looked to Christ. It's because he looked to Christ. You see, Abraham and those who are descended from Abraham according to the flesh, it was possible to not really be a true son of Abraham. Because if you don't have the faith of Abraham, then you are a son by way of, of circumcision and of the flesh, but not, of, not of, the, of faith. And Paul talks about this in Romans 4. He says that you, as a Christian, are a child of Abraham by faith. Because the promise comes by faith, not just to Jews, but to those who have the faith of Abraham. And friends, I hope that you are not relying on anything other than Jesus Christ. Because the Jews, some of them were sons of Abraham, as I said. They were circumcised. They were raised in the community of faith. But this didn't save them. Many of them fell away. Remember the wilderness generation? Hebrews warns us about them. They did not enter their rest. And so, are you like the sons of Abraham, who were not sons of the promise, and not, they did not have his faith? Just because you have a mom and a dad who are Christians does not make you a Christian. Just because you were brought up in the church does not give you faith. Even if you were baptized, brought into church membership, and partake of the Lord's Supper, these things don't save you. Christ saves you. You must have the faith of Abraham, who looked to Christ, even though Christ to him was, was murky, he did not fully see with the clear eyes that we see, we need to have, he had faith, and we need to have the same faith of Abraham. Look to Christ and what he has done. He's the only rock upon which you can stand, for everything else is sinking sand. Let's look at the fourth thing. The fourth thing. God promised many descendants. God promised many descendants. This is in verse 17. God says, I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. Have you ever been up to the mountains or in the desert and you've seen what we don't see here in Southern California, the beautiful stars? If you're up at high elevation in the desert in California, there's some places where it's almost like there's no sky. And, and think about Abraham lived a long time ago before there was pollution and light pollution. Think about how many stars Abraham would have seen. You see, God says to Abraham, all those stars, you'll have as many descendants as that. And the sand on the seashore, I live in Huntington Beach, and there's a lot of sand just on that one beach. That's a lot of people. The, these analogies are, are to God showing Abraham how many um, descendants he will have. And these, the word, this, this word offspring right here, this refers to the children of Abraham, according to the flesh. And God had already promised this to Abraham. And did you know this promise came true? God was good to his word. If you look at 1 Kings 4.20, it says, Judah and Israel were as many as the sand of the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. 
And then later in Hebrews eleven twelve, it says, Therefore from one man, Abraham, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. God was true to his side of the covenant with Abraham. God promised many descendants. Okay, the last thing, number five, is that God promised one descendant. God promised one descendant. We see it starts with all of Abraham's children, but then the promise narrows, and it gets to one person. Let's read the second part of verse 17. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. This is, this is beautiful. And, and according to Hebrew grammar, there's a difference between the offspring that is talked about earlier in verse 17 and the one that is talked about now. This is why the ESV, if you have it, translate the word um, his enemies. I think that's a good translation. Now, who could this one descendant be who would possess the gates of his enemies? Think about that. If, you, if I had a castle and you possessed my gates, that means you defeated me. You won. So this means that this descendant of Abraham will defeat his enemies. And it says that the, all the nations of the earth will be blessed through this descendant. Well, what son of Abraham defeated his enemies, and blessed all the nations. Well, we could think of Joshua, or we could think of David. We could think of many uh, sons of Abraham. But, of course, this clearly points to Christ. And Paul mentions this as well in Galatians 3. He says in Galatians 3.16, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring who is Christ. Paul makes the same point. And you know, I think Paul was doing good uh, interpretation of the Hebrew text here in Galatians 3. And so, let's, let's zoom out. When we look at this passage as a whole, we've seen that God is showing Abraham how one of his descendants, namely Christ, would bless all the nations of the world and defeat his enemies. But earlier we also saw how the blessing to all the nations would come through the offering up of the only son of the father. And so when you put this together, it gives a beautiful demonstration of the gospel. We see how God will save his people. Sometimes I wonder, how much did Abraham know about Christ? How much did, did Moses know about Christ? Well, we can say from this passage, Abraham knew that the Christ would be one of his sons, that the salvation of the world might include a kind of substitutionary sacrifice, and that through his son, all the nations of the world will be blessed. That's quite a lot, is it not? And Abraham really did look to Christ. As it says in Hebrews 11, he looked to a city whose foundations were built by God. Well, I hope that, that as we've listened to, the, to this text in Genesis 22, I hope that one of your takeaways has been the unity of the Bible. You see, there's one author of the Bible, the Holy Spirit. And even though there are many human authors, they are all inspired by one spirit. And all these connections and types and shadows, this shouldn't surprise us because we know that the Holy Spirit has inspired all of these men. All right, so back to our signpost. God has provided a lamb for his chosen people, specifically in the descendant of Abraham who will possess the gate of his enemies and bless all the nations. All right, our last point. Number three, the meager yet mighty. The meager yet mighty. This is found in verses 19 to 24. 
I'm not going to reread them for sake of time, but this is a genealogy. This seems quite odd, doesn't it? The, the events on Mount Moriah are epic. They are truly terrifying and intriguing. And then this passage seems to bring on the yawns, does it not? It's a genealogy. Why would it suddenly tell us about how many kids Abraham's brother was having? This doesn't make sense. So how can we figure this out? Well, there's two things I think we should note. This is not just a genealogy. Look at verse 20. I'm sorry. Look at, yeah, look at verse 20. It says, it was told to Abraham. It's not just a record of names. It's an it's a event in the narrative. Someone tells Abraham right after the events of Mount Moriah that his brother is having a lot of kids. And notice how many kids his brother had. Eight kids through his wife and four from a concubine. That's 12. Compare that or contrast that with Abraham's kids. He had one illegitimate son who he had banished into the desert and another one who had just narrowly escaped being sacrificed on a hill. You see, Abraham, when, if he compared his kids to the, to the kids of his brother Nahor, this might have been discouraging. So, so what, are, what are these verses telling us? We have to remember that genealogies are not just always just genealogies. Remember, the, Bible, the, the writers of the Bible have a theological purpose behind writing what they write. And Dale Ralph Davis helpfully um, says, God's chosen people appear fragile, few, flimsy, and unimpressive besides the vigorous growth and strength of the non-promised line. That's his brother Nahor. God's people so often seem weak and un- nondescript over against the success and power of the world around them. Do you see what's going on here? Abraham has this event with Mount Moriah with his son, and then he hears of the great success of his brother. But remember, Abraham, he was given the promise. And even though by worldly standards, his brother was much, much greater, God covenanted with him through his son Isaac. And God is not a slave. God is not a slave to our conventions. God doesn't work according to our understanding of how history should work. And we see throughout the Bible that God delights in raising the humble and opposing the proud. We see that he blesses the younger brother over the older brother over and over again. We see he uses cultural outcasts like shepherds and tax collectors and sinners and zealots to achieve his purposes. He casts down human wisdom. As the hymn goes, blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. And sometimes we as believers, we're, we can be like Abraham when we can compare and contrast the great wealth and success and power of others. And perhaps we, we don't know if Abraham did uh, grow envious or discouraged, but sometimes we can be. We want to be powerful and rich and famous and successful in the world's eyes. Look at our church. We have a a facility that's breaking down. We have 130 members. We're not powerful according to the world. But remember the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 1. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. 
And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You see, not many of us are wise according to the world. Not many of us are powerful, or not many of us are of noble birth that I know of. But you see, God has chosen you, and that's what makes you special. Not anything according to the world. Not because you have lots of kids, or you're powerful, or you're famous, or of noble birth. What makes you special is you're a child of God. You see, remember, back to our our signpost. God has provided a lamb for his chosen people. You are one of his chosen people. And even as weak and unassuming as God's people sometimes can be, like Abraham, an old man with a young son who was almost sacrificed, God uses weak things in the world um, and people uh, to bring forth his wonderful purposes. And so let's review our three points. As God provided a ram in the place of his, uh, as God provided a ram in the place of Isaac, we see the beginnings of substitutionary atonement in the Bible. And we see this expanding and developing through Passover, through the sacrificial system, until it comes to Christ, who is the Lamb of God. Remember what John the Baptist said when he saw Jesus? Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. And then secondly, as God confirmed his covenant with Abraham, he swore by himself, showing that just as God is perfect and reliable, so will his covenant promises will be. And in the Abrahamic covenant, God promises many descendants descendants according to the flesh to Abraham, but he he also promises one descendant who will defeat his enemies and bless the nations. And lastly, as we saw that Abraham saw his brother's prosperity contrasted with the meager situation of his own family, we see that God many times chooses the meager in the world and illuminates his purposes through them. And I'd like to close these, these two sermons on Genesis 22 by reading a poem by Hercules Collins. This is what Hercules Collins wrote several hundred years ago. The most high Lord they bound with cord and led to Calvary, fixed on a cross most ponderous on which he was to die. Upon his back, like Isaac, the blessed type of Christ, this cross did lie most heavily, though he was meek and just. Well, it is said in God's sure word, excellent things doth he. Tis showed forth in all the earth, God for his church will be. Now are made good the prophet's words, spake since the world began. God's covenant stood, his mercy's good, he sent to us his son. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful for your word, and even difficult passages like Genesis chapter 22. And Lord, we pray that we, uh, as Christians who have, have pled the merits of Christ's blood, would look again, would look again to the Lamb who has died in our place, and that we would see our sin, and that we would have true and deep repentance, but that we would always base this upon the atoning work of Christ. And we're thankful for your covenant promises to us and the new covenant, Lord. We are thankful that by faith, Lord, we look to Christ, who has bled and died for us, And Lord, we're thankful that even though, Lord, sometimes we feel weak and unassuming and nondescript against the world standards, Lord, that you have chosen us for your purposes, and we pray that this would encourage us today. Lord, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.